Monica. Hi, Jennifer. How excited are you for today's interview? You know, I'm beyond excited. I've been such a fan of Bill Browning for as long as I can remember, and we hadn't met before. My work is all about connecting people with experiences in nature, and he has just a wealth of information about the reasons why these experiences are so beneficial. Also, guys, just a heads up, you might hear a few sirens in the background towards the beginning of the recording. I mean, I live in New York City. What are you going to do? I'll try to forgive you. (laughs) Thanks a lot. All right. So as Jennifer mentioned, we recently sat down with Bill Browning. And Bill is a designer and one of the green building industry's foremost thinkers and strategists. And he has worked on green solutions and biophilic design at all levels of business, government, and society. He co-founded the environmental consulting firm Terrapin Bright Green way back in 2006. And today we're diving into a report he authored called The 14 Patterns That Improve Health and Well-Being in the Built Environment. And I promise you, it's a super interesting read. It's all about the relationship between nature, human health, and the built environment. It's absolutely fascinating. And if that doesn't pique your interest, Bill was just recently mentioned in a Vogue article. Wasn't that so cool? I loved that article with him. And one thing we learned is that there is now a 15th pattern, which I think is my all-time favorite and one I can really relate to. I know. So should we say anything about it? No, no, no. Let's just leave the big reveal to Bill. I will say that I love how these ideas are evolving and growing as more science and research comes out. All right. Let's get into our episode with Bill Browning. How are you? Welcome to Biophilic Solutions, and thank you for being our second guest. Thanks. Happy to be here today. We are thrilled to have you. Monica and I have been huge fans for many years, many, many years, so um, we're thankful that you're here today with us. Yeah, and so we want to just jump right in and would love it if you would start just sort of telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. I'm a designer and uh, recovering real estate developer. And uh, I run a small research and consulting firm called Terrapin Bright Green, and we're based in New York City and Washington, D.C. Right. And tell us what Terrapin Bright Green does for consulting. uh, (laughs) Terrapin is a small firm focused on uh, green buildings. And Mm -hmm. so our work is doing green building consulting, usually on sort of weird, complex buildings. Uh, We've got a 118-story uh, tower in Malaysia that's uh, going to be lead platinum that's just about finished. Uh, we just had a really amazing little energy and nature center on Jones Beach in, in uh, New York uh, that was just completed. It's net uh, zero ready and is a really interesting conversation about resilience and energy and ecosystems and overlap of all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're working on various new communities in various places and, and other buildings. I love it. Yeah. That's pretty neat because I me, mean, Monica and I know like you've been in the space of biophilia longer than pretty much anyone. Can you kind of give us a little background into what biophilia is and how you actually, when was the first time you found out about biophilia? So biophilia is really just how we respond to experiences of nature and the sort of deep-seated connection that we have with nature and natural systems. Our introduction to it was uh, back when I was at Rocky Mountain Institute, we were doing work of case studies on early green buildings, and we're seeing these really kind of surprising, spectacular jumps in worker productivity. And couldn't, you know, 
thought it was maybe daylighting. It was this or that, you know, better indoor air quality, but all these sort of bits and pieces, but didn't have a larger context to connect it to. And we got introduced to environmental psychologist named uh, Judith Hirwagen, works with the General Services Administration and also uh, teaches at the University of Washington. And Judy is the one who brought us into the context of biophilia and early research going on in that field. Um, and it made sense um, because what we were seeing, we thought was really, you know, increased sales and uh, lower absenteeism rates and better healing and all these sorts of things were kind of placeholders for maybe this bigger issue about health and well-being and how how we could create spaces that really maximize that. And biofilia really gets at that. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, right? How long have how long have people been in buildings? Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Not very long. Not very long. And so we've spent the vast majority of the time that people have been people outside. Yeah. So we're attuned to that. So mm-hmm. we should be bringing those sorts of characteristics back into our buildings. Well, and I think that the green building industry and the design industry has really been at the forefront of biophilic design. And I think, you know, obviously you have been there, I want to say since the beginning, but one of the things you're really well known for is putting together patterns and really, I don't know if the right word is like codifying the concept into sort of um, 14 patterns. And then I know you have a 15th now. Am I saying that correctly? Is, is that sort of why you brought those together? Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Yeah, I mean, the early conversations about biophilic, there are all these sorts of different experiences of nature um, all over the place. And um, you wound up with these lists that were 100 items long or 72 items long. As a former partner, business partner, Chris Garden used to say, look at that list and my head explodes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a designer, I, I can't deal with that much, right? Right, so, sure, sure. Um, but what we really realized was that um, when we started digging through the science to understand what was going on and how people were responding, we realized that um, – all these different experiences sort of fell into a smaller set of categories mm-hmm. that we grouped um, by direct experiences of nature, which we called nature in space. Mm-hmm. Um, representations of nature we call natural analogs. And then the three-dimensional characteristic of the space itself, mm-hmm. nature of space. And once we got to that, then we could start saying, okay, here are... Uh, different experiences. We chose patterns uh, because pattern languages and, and pattern books have been used in design for hundreds of years. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I had never connected that until now. Yeah, it's it's an old, old traditional way of doing design, and it was, but it wasn't. But those pattern books were usually objects like. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is the way you do a door frame. This is the way you do a pediment over. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, this is the way you create um, Greek revival. This is right. So the patterns are uh, is an old way of designing, and it was really Christopher Alexander and his team that um, started making the shift to the patterns and what experiences the patterns could create. 
Uh, right. That makes sense. And so we decided it made the most sense to do this as an experiential pattern language. Okay. Um, so just to reiterate, there's three sort of groupings, if you will, right? There's nature in space, natural analogs, and nature of the space. And we'll sort of dig into all three of these, right? Yeah. I mean, I would love, I mean, Jennifer, this is kind of your world, like nature in the space. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that. Can you kind of delve into that a little bit more? Because what is nature in the space mean exactly? So that's trying to bring direct experiences of nature into the built environment. Okay. Mm. Um, and so the most obvious and the one that you find the, the earliest and the most science on is just having a view to nature. Mm. So you know, the, the very first study that most people come across when they dig into biophilia is Roger Ulrich's work at uh, Texas A&M University, where they're looking at patients recovering from one very specific surgery mm-hmm. and coming from all over the country for this surgery, but they um, all wound up in one ward for the recovery, and the recovery is actually fairly long. Mm-hmm. And they noticed some differences in outcomes, so they finally um, combed through all the patients and found uh 23 matched pairs that they could match demographically. Even the, the paint color of the room was matched. Huh. Wow. And the remaining variable was what was the view out the window? Hmm. So Incredible. 23 of those people had uh, a view to a brick wall and 23 of them had a view to uh, trees and shrubs. And there was a significant difference in how long it took them to recover. It's incredible. Amazing. Is that, was that the, uh, the early 1980s, correct? Was that what? The 84 was in that. Was okay. yeah. And that, you know, that's kind of one of the first pieces of what now is called evidence-based design. Mm. Um, and that leads to the whole healing gardens movement. Mm-hmm. Cooper Marcus and others, and you see healing gardens in hospitals worldwide. Mm-hmm. And, you know, two of the most, uh, I think, Elaborate and, and famous are Kutat Pak and Ning Ting Fong in um, Singapore, mm-hmm. the public hospitals done by um, CPG architects. And the first one, uh, Kutat Pak, is two wings. Uh, one's a surgical and sort of office wing, and the other is uh, wards and office. And then separated between them is an artificial stream and rainforest. And all the rooms look out into that. They have operable windows. And so when you're in the wards, you look out into this or you look down the stream to uh, what was a water storage basin that was redone as a more naturalistic reservoir. Okay. And then the roof of the surgical wing is organic uh, community gardens. Beautiful. Incredible. So it's extraordinary. And, and the, the space between the two wings are these public walkways on multiple levels in a restaurant. Hmm. So they actually encourage people in the neighborhood as you're walking, uh, from your, uh, apartment tower to the transit, nearby transit station. You walk through the middle of the hospital and wow. so it pulls the hospital into the fabric of the community. But because of this habitat they've created, um, you'll see these big um, areas where there are all these pictures. And so 
here are the hundred different species of butterflies they've seen on the site. Here are the 80 species of birds they've seen on the, on the site. Wow. Right? It's just, you know, and it's, it's really amazing. The newer hospital uh, that was done by CPG along with uh, HOK architects, Newton Fong, is in a, a sort of even more urban area of Singapore. And so that hospital is a high rise. And so the way they made the connection to nature there was that going up the facade of the building, you have these stair-stepping little sky gardens so that each ward is four or six beds, Hmm. and at the head of the bed is a floor-to-ceiling window with a view out to one of those sky gardens. Oh, so brilliant. So every every bed has a view to a little sky garden. And right. then on the roof of another section of the building is a more elaborate garden that actually has water features in it. And that adjoins the break in uh, area for the hospital staff. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? The Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes, and I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations... We're going to have all sorts of great farm-to-table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings, and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Serenby for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26th, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. Are you seeing more of this desire from hospitals in the U.S. now to be more biophilic like this? Yeah, there's a lo- there are a lot of amazing healing gardens in, um, in the U.S., and there's been some really good work. Um, one of the in retrospect, probably not so surprising outcomes was, you know, there's huge turnover in nursing staff. Mm, okay. And um, so they found that the hospitals that have really nice healing gardens, um, it's not just great for the patients, but it's been a real boon for the, for the staff. Interesting. Uh, and those hospitals frequently have less turnover. Um, when staff has that place, they can go take a break. Are you reading anything about COVID outcomes with everything that's happened this past year? Has anything been starting to be written about that? 
So, um, you know, obviously the COVID patients are typically in ICUs. So mm-hmm. They're not seeing much of anything. Yeah. Uh, but we did see the, a friend of ours, uh, Mirelle Phillips, amazing artist, uh, has did now several of these, but the first one was uh, at Mount Sinai in Manhattan, mm-hmm. an installation where they took a uh, empty room and she did a video installation and put in uh, comfortable seats and plants and and created a break space for a 15-minute uh, video, nature video experience oh. for wow. hospital staff. And some of the neuroscience team uh, at Sinai has been monitoring the outcomes of that, and it's been really quite extraordinary. Wow, and, that's fascinating. Yeah, and that's, um, she's now, uh, they're now creating that uh, for other places as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I know when I just take a quick walk through the woods, like between neighborhoods, like it's just a game changer, right? Just a small five, mm-hmm. 10 minutes is all I need. And I know Jennifer, you're up in um, Central Park all the time. Okay. So so for the nature in space, um, um, I- I- am I simplifying it to say bringing nature indoors? Um, you know, I'm looking at the patterns in front of me and we'll put these up on the website, but, you know, it's like water, light, um, airflow, um, you know, a visual connection with nature. Um, sounds of nature. Sounds, sounds, stimuli. Yeah. Yes, yes. Different um, physical conditions, all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. also, so there are seven patterns within that group. And they're all those sort of direct ways of bringing those direct experiences into nature. Now, into a, into a building, into a room. Even just a picture of nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Heard that. Help. Yeah. I mean, work, um, so one of the things that we've, we've learned is that um, when I'm looking at nature, when I'm experiencing nature, the brain actually shifts processing mode and the prefrontal cortex quiets down. And this is what's called attention restoration theory. Sure. After that experience, um, I have better cognitive capacity. And so this was uh, attention restoration theory was developed by Rachel and Stephen Kaplan at the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And the question for a long time was, how long does it take? And a really amazing experiment done by a team at the University of Melbourne a few years ago showed that all they had to do was show people a picture of nature for 40 seconds. 40 seconds? Wow. Wow. Into okay. processing mode. And so the state uh, that... Uh, the description of the state the brain is in when you're really deeply experiencing nature is called soft fascination, mm. right? Soft you are you're very much aware, you're fascinated, but you're not expending a lot of energy to, right? It's, yeah. it's a relaxation response. I love that. And even just, even just seeing a picture of nature, we know also from Roger Ulrich's later work with uh, – cardiac patients, but other people's work, uh, Peter Kahn's work at the University of Washington, is that uh, seeing a picture of nature will lower blood pressure and heart rate. That's incredible. Which is the yeah. real thing, but it will lower blood pressure and heart rate. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, talk about the second sort of um, 
bucket, if you will, the natural analogs. What does that mean, natural analogs? This isn't, I mean, I think of digital. Is this analog? <laughs> these, are, these are representations of nature. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the first is biomorphic forms. Okay. Right? So shapes in like the leg of a piece of furniture mm -hmm. or, you know, or the claw foot tub or, okay. you know, makes sense. or the handle that has, you know, a leaf shape in it or um, even just um, fabric patterns with flowers and, mm -hmm. and shapes and, you know, natural shapes. So, Biomorphic forms can be three-dimensional or it can be flat okay. representation. Okay. Um, and then the second uh, that we have in there are um, use of natural materials. Okay. Got it. And uh, the brain sorts between alive and not alive subconsciously and almost instantaneously. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. We have a preference for the alive. Okay, makes sense. Um, and so there's really, really strong preference for wood and stone and other natural materials. Mm, I can definitely understand that. Right. But why? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly, right? No, and in fact, that's one of our, hopefully one of our next research projects. We're proposal out to actually dive into this. Uh, we've talked to some neuroscientists, and the response that we've got is that maybe one of two things. The first is what's called semantic processing in the brain. Okay. And in the semantic processing, the brain goes, ah, wood, tree, alive. Sure. Okay. Boom, boom. Mm -hmm. So it might be that, or it may be uh, this next pattern, which is uh, complexity and order, which has to do with fractals. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Uh, right, and and collinear patterns, and when fractals occur all over the place in nature, so fractals are repeating forms, and they can be generated mathematically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so when we think about exact fractals, you get into things like Mandelbrot sets and those posters back from whenever. <laughs> um, that's but nature produces fractals that are tend not to be exact. They frequently are have some variation with them. They're still can be derived mathematically. So those are called statistical fractals. Mm -hmm. I'm actually sitting here looking at one of my favorites right now is that the lights coming through uh, the skylight uh, over me onto a ficus tree and seeing on the wall behind or across from me the amazing dapple light pattern on the wall. Oh, interesting. Wow. Okay, so this isn't just like um, a leaf or a snowflake. Are those fractals, or am I am I just thinking more of a different pattern? Yeah, okay, those are, those are good fractals. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's also think waves on a beach. Yeah, planes dancing in a fireplace, right? Yeah, those yes. are statistical fractals. Okay, they're, both, they're similar, but they're not exactly exact, right? Each one. That's so fascinating. I think about that because I love like there when I see light, I live in a tent in the summertime. And sometimes when I just see the light coming through the tent and the way the light shines at a certain time of day, it's just this beautifulness to it. It's just this raw beauty of light that kind of comes through, but it ebbs and flows because of the shade. And would that be a part of it, I guess? Well, that's the dynamic light aspect. The ebbs and flows, okay. the dynamic part, and then the patterns that are created by the shadows. 
mm. uh, can be a statistical fractal. And, and the dappled light through trees is one of the one of the most classic. Um, we also know that well. <laughs> one of our friends says, one of another scientists, you know, when we're watching fractals uh, move, we're just sort of transfixed. We're yeah. sort of, right, you know. And you think about it, there's no rational reason why I should stare at a fireplace for hours. Right. Sure. right. Like, yeah. wow. <laughs> so beautiful. It's so beautiful, right? Yeah. Right. No yeah. rational reason why I should sit there and stare at a fireplace for hours, but we are transfixed. And right. Absolutely. Like and what's happening? That's a moving fractal. That's right. in motion, right? Well, are you you see the um the fireplace? It's like the videos of the fireplace. Yes. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, you know, it's sort of like it seems so bizarre, but I guess it makes total sense. So that's I do that at home, by the way. I put you? my you know, my TV on the fireplace yeah, so I can watch it, which is bizarre <laughs> in my Upper East Side apartment. So, so but I love it. You're doing research on this. So so what does that mean? Like what, what does that entail to sort of um, dig into the natural analogs and why? So one, we wanted to, we just wrote a paper on fractals uh, okay. uh, with a, a brilliant researcher from uh, Italy, Rita Drama. She's awesome working on it. Okay. Um, so fractals occur so much in nature that when we see them in human designed objects, it's actually easier for the brain to process it. Uh-huh. The brain kind of goes, oh, know what that is. Yeah, got that. Uh-huh. Right? Um, uh-huh. And so you actually see a measurable drop in stress, and you can measure it pretty quickly just with galvanic skin testing. And so there are uh, teams of scientists at uh, Salk, uh, the neuroscientists at Salk Institute in, in La Jolla, uh-huh. We're working on also, so when you see collinear forms, the lines that are moving in similar patterns, waving or mm-hmm. or things like that, um, that's also easier to process. Hmm. When we see those fractals, the, the term that, I'm not sure who coined it, but we hear it from our friends at the University of Oregon who are doing really amazing fractal research, uh, Richard Taylor and uh, Iha Belizadi and others. Fractal fluency. Hmm, okay. Fluent with fractals, so that when we use them in human design objects, that we're already predisposed to be able to understand what it is, and so we get a relaxation response as a result of that. And so, if we're in our home, or we're in an office environment, or obviously an institutional could be education or hospital. Um, we can, when we're walking to a room, we're processing everything and it's just an easier processing for us. It, it, it's a calming processing. Is that it? And then we feel better and then so we form all productive. Is, is a great word to use for it. We, um, we worked with a architect out of Baltimore, uh, Jim Detterman and yeah. Morgan State University and the neuroscience team at Salk. To mm-hmm. do an experiment on what would be the minimal intervention, you know, what would be the lowest cost intervention we could do to have a significant impact for students in an inner city school. Uh. And so we did a year-long experiment in a sixth grade mathematics classroom uh, at the Green Street Academy uh, in West Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And sixth graders uh, in a mathematics classroom. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so several steps in the room. There's already um, Denise facing on up on the second floor, so you know, potentially really good daylight. Um, although typically with Venetian blinds that were usually left closed most all the time, uh-huh. there in the morning. Teachers are graded by how much content they put on the walls. So they cover the walls with posters, with formulas and stuff. Turns out the the neuroscientists tell us that that's overstimulating. That's actually counterproductive. Wow. The first thing we did was get permission that the teacher could only put up three posters on the wall at a time. Now, that was actually really tough to do because the teachers are – graded on how much content they put on the walls. Wow. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. And what the neuroscientists were telling us, mm-hmm, wrong, bad. So <laughs> did that. Yeah. Okay. And then we added, um, and there was a garden outside that a landscape firm donated some more plants to, and we added to the garden. Mm-hmm. And then made some really simple cosmetic changes in the classroom itself. Carpet tiles went down uh, from interface mm-hmm. that had a pattern that's like waving waves of grass. It's oh wow! Grass. What's it called? Prairie grass. Prairie grass. Prairie grass. Um, an artist at uh, Design Text, which is part of Steelcase, worked with the neuroscientists itself to create a new pattern of wallpaper, a wallpaper freeze to go around the top of the classroom. Okay. Um, in an abstraction of palm leaves. Okay. So that gives you the biomorphic forms and the collinear patterns. Uh-huh. And then Mecco shade uh, that makes fabric uh, window shades silk screened onto their fabric the shadow pattern of tree branch shadows. Oh, wow. Beautiful. A statistical fractal. Sure. Window shades. That's neat. And then some of the ceiling tiles were replaced with some waveform ceiling tiles. Okay. And so you used the word calm a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. That was the exact word that when... The children who use the classroom, 122 kids who use that classroom over the course of uh, the week, um, and the teacher, that was the most typically used word by all of them mm-hmm. in, their, in the survey and interviews about their experience in that room. So, That's so incredible. Survey was one way we did measurement. We also did, uh, they use a... A academic online testing four times a year. The kids have to go through this testing every year. Mm-hmm. And because it was the same teacher who taught in that classroom multiple years before teaching the exact same curriculum, we could compare test results from prior years because it's the same test as well. Yeah. At the beginning of the year in September, the test scores were pretty much the same from the year before and then. Mm-hmm. As the as the kids spent time in that classroom, their performance got better and better and better. And so we saw a three-fold wow. increase in the level of performance of the of the kids. Wow. Um, with that classroom as a biofield classroom. So it was comparing 125 kids to 122 kids. That's incredible. 
What's something like that? Like, you know, so I, I kind of wrote down that it sounded like there was like, besides the decluttering, there were four sort of changes that the flooring, this sort of freeze, um, the shades and the ceiling waveforms. Um, you know, this may, because it was a one-off, it may have cost X, but, you know, schools are always very concerned about, right. They don't have the budget, but, but, but that sounds pretty doable um, yeah, to be able to recommend that. already use carpet tile. Right. Right. So just change. Right? Yeah. So just change that. Wallpaper. Yeah. Wallpaper is really cheap. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, window blinds cost a little bit more, but you know, from an energy stand, energy savings sure. standpoint, and everything else, that's a good investment. Uh huh. Um, so because we used automated. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, and which was funny because there were times when we actually were told that they were. The kids would want to see outside, so they would go ahead, even though the light conditions weren't perfect. Right. They would go ahead and open, override, and open the blinds. Has this been like, um, you, you know, again, I, I haven't, um, there's been so much going on in the past year, but I haven't totally kept up with the education, public education. Um, but it seems like something as simple as that would be an amazing thing to sort of require either a retrofit or new public education buildings for K through 12. Is that a radical idea or? Um, it'd be not, I'd probably <laughs> hard to require, but it would sure would be highly recommended. Benefits alone, right? Yeah. No. So since we, we published um, the paper more than a year ago, actually, okay. uh, year, almost a year and a half ago now, I guess um, we have been, mostly online, but some in person yes. before everything got closed down, uh, Jim Detterman and myself and others of the team have been making lots of presentations at education conferences and education Great. conferences. And there's been a lot of interest in it um, because the, we also did, you know, we were actually, we only got four months of it, but we actually did biometric testing as well. Really? Oh, wow. Just the surveys and the interviews and looking at test scores, but we actually wanted to see physiologically, did it make a difference? Sure. Now, we only have four months of data because getting permission to do biometric testing on grade school children yeah, of is course. complicated. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so what we did was we picked one class and we had a control classroom down the hallway and picked another math class that was at the exact same time. And we did heart rate variability. And so heart rate variability is a good way to um, tell if you, you know, your stress recovery characteristics. Mm -hmm. And so what you're looking for is we did a measurement at the beginning of class. Mm -hmm. So less than a minute. And at the very 90 minutes later at the end of class. And we did that three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Okay. For four months in those two classrooms. And what we saw was in the control classroom, the number that the kids start with is pretty much the same number they end with. It doesn't really change. Hmm. But what we saw in the biophilic classroom was a marked improvement from the beginning to end of class. Amazing. Wow. 
That's unbelievable. So would that then go into the the nature of a space? So it's like what you're talking about now at the fractal patterns. Does that also mean nature so of space? Are all this, these are just the analogs, right? This, okay. These representations of nature. Um, but the point of this is, you know, you think about it, you know, all right, so what's the pattern on my curtains? What's the pattern in my sure. curtains? Right, yeah. like, I'm looking you know, around my, my room. Do I have biomorphic forms? Do I have fractals? Yeah. You know, those mm-hmm. are really easy things to do. Um, you know, particularly as more and more folks are going to work at home, those are easy and inexpensive changes to make, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? And particularly if you're renting with a removable wallpaper, I could, you know, create a panel that's a fun fractal pattern that, Yeah, those are you know minimal interventions. So that third category, that third bucket that we mentioned, Mm -hmm. are the spatial conditions themselves. Okay. Okay. Three-dimensional spatial conditions, and these are the ones that are actually, uh, in some ways, that people overlook the most. Uh, But the but the response to them is really powerful, and. Um, so we started when we wrote the 14 patterns of biophilic design, we had four of those patterns. Okay. The first one is prospect. That's where I have an unimpeded view through space. Mm-hmm. And that's really important for wayfinding, perceptions of, of safety and opportunity and interest. It definitely lowers our stress. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a physiological component to that is particularly if I'm stuck on my computer screen all day long, sure. I get stuck in the, in the short visual uh, focus, mm-hmm. which takes all the muscles in the eye to contract to round the lens to do that. Oh. Right? So imagine you're sitting, you know. Yeah. Well, wow. Of course you get a headache because it's muscle fatigue, right? Oh, you're okay. Physically yep. tired. And if you sit all day doing that, eventually the muscles give up and the lens actually hardens into that shape. So when you do go outside, your vision is compromised. It takes a while for the lens to soften like that. But it can <laughs> get you to look up and look away. So that's right. less than three feet away or less than a meter away is a short visual focus. There are two others. And then there's the infinite visual focus, which is anything more than 100 feet or more than uh, 33 meters away from you, right? And mm-hmm. um, in the infinite visual focus, the lens flattens in the eye to see that. Mm-hmm. When the lens flattens, all the muscles in the eye relax. Oh, wow. If I, if I can get you to look up and look away, then now I have that relaxation response along with the, with the you know, at a prospect view. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can create, you know, great interior spaces like a hallway or, you know, you can create prospect views inside as well. But mm-hmm. the, the, for the great, the, the long distance ones, a view to the outside is really helpful. Mm-hmm. So the next condition is one that you definitely can see at mm-hmm. Um And that is uh, a condition called refuge. Mm-hmm. That's where my back is protected. And I have a canopy, may have some canopy overhead. In a restaurant, the classic example would be you, you come into a restaurant and you've got all the round tables in the center and mm-hmm. around the perimeter you have um, all the booths. And it's really disappointing because all the booths are already taken. 
Of yes. yes, we always want the booth. The most desired, right? The most desired, right. Yeah. What what are you experiencing in the booth? My back is protected. I mean I have the canopy overhead, so I have refuge. And I have a view across the whole rest of the restaurant, so I have prospect Perfect. and refuge together. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Right? Absolutely. Or think about the in Serenby, you've got a lot of those houses that have the really great front porches with the with the balcony or the ceiling over, over mm-hmm. overhead, the overhanging roof. And they're typically raised up about 18 inches, so you can sit there and you can look all up and down the street, have conversations with people on the street. So I've got my prospect view, and I'm mm-hmm. sitting in average conditions. I love that. So those are two of the patterns, prospect and refuge. This was first identified by an English landscape geographer, Jay Appleton, way back in the 1970s. Okay. The next condition is a, is a fun one, and um, it's called mystery. Mystery? Where there is partially revealed information that you just feel compelled to go explore. Oh. get the rest of the information. So the classic example would be a curving road. Oh, got it. Sure. Maybe there's more around that corner and it's really interesting. Or the curving path in a forest. Mm-hmm. And the feel compelled, you know, think about it. If you take kids out on a walk or go with dogs out on a walk and the path curves, they're going to bolt and go running off ahead of you to see what's around the curve and you've got to go around to catch up. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. You're That's right. Mystery. mystery can also be done with sound. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Where's that music coming from? Right. Or bakeries are really good at that one. The smell. Yeah. Absolutely. I hadn't Absolutely. thought about that. That's a great example. Right? So mm-hmm. That's mystery. Um, another pattern, a really fun one, uh, is risk peril. Right? Mm. So one of my favorite examples is in New York is the Guggenheim Museum, Frank Lloyd Wright's sure. Museum. You have that amazing spiraling wrap in the center. Mm-hmm. You get to the top, and you just have to look over into the center, right? Mm-hmm. Wright was really good at risk peril, and he uses it. Uh, in a number of places. And he does it well there. That railing is legally high enough, but it's also at a height that is just slightly uncomfortable. Absolutely. And 100% so agree with you. When you look over that, it's pretty exhilarating. And it's also very funny. We have pictures of people looking over, and you'll notice that the feet are back a little ways from the rail, and their hands are on it as they're looking over. Uh huh. Right? So risk peril, right? You're not going to fall, but it's still, it's even a little more exhilarating. Yeah. Would that be, you're seeing these um, crazy towers with these um, glass bottom pools. Would that be an example of that? It's so wrong. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> For those of us with the fear of heights, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but is, is that a risk peril or is that just bad design? <laughs> no, that's risk peril. That's, okay. that's a, good, a good example of risk peril. Um, or you some know, of this. You know, think about um, the stepping stones through a pond <clears throat> in a Japanese garden. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to pay attention to make each step. So you don't fall into the pond. Sure. It's not so deep that you're going to drown, but 
you know, you have to pay attention. And so it's creating that risk peril and, um, and in a really intentional, uh, experiential way. So those were the four initial patterns. And then there was another pattern that we were really interested in. But when we first did the initial work and wrote the 14 patterns of biophilic design, a lot of our work was, uh, in, for quite a while, has been supported by Google as supporters and are doing the science dives to understand these patterns. And we wanted to include that one, but at the time there wasn't enough science. Okay. And we actually thought that it, the pattern we were talking about might actually be just multiple patterns being experienced at the same time. Okay. Um, and it wasn't until fairly recently that we realized that it's actually a very distinct brain and physiological response. Mm-hmm. And that's that feeling that you get when you walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon. Sure. Or you walk into an amazing cathedral. Mm-hmm. Right? And you stop. And your mouth drops open. Your eyes get wide. And your heart rate changes. And... So it's a really distinct brain response. It's an overload response of multiple centers in the brain light up and and rush forward, and then you stop, and you get the physical and facial response. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you also have a psychological cascade that goes with that, and that is that you are humbled. Mm. And you, after that experience, you will tend to exhibit much more pro-social behavior and be more charitable. Um, and so um, that's the experience of awe. That's incredible. Um, well, talk about the charitability and be more sociable because that's incredible. That's um, yeah. I, I remember um, seeing the um, eclipse and nothing I had ever experienced in my life prepared me for that. And, you know, there's these eclipse chasers and I thought that was crazy town, but now I'm like, yes, if I could just run around the world and see eclipse, I would do it. It was the most amazing experience. So I was on an airplane during it and I landed and uh. still, it was still partial. I was in, I landed in San Diego and I walked outside and I was so bummed because I didn't have glasses. And there were people out there, right? Sure. And this guy just turned to me and said, here, here's mine. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. That's the perfect example. (laughs) Yeah, no, but it was, it was this, um, we were with, on a rooftop of a hotel and in Greenville, like kind of right at the, whatever line of it. And it was just, you know, we had with a couple friends, but a ton of unknown people and it was the most amazing like loving group experience yeah. um yeah the funniest experience of charitability is actually mm-hmm. the experiment was done where they gave had people have an awe experience and then they handed them donation baskets oh, <laughs> oh really <laughs> no kidding and after the awe experience, they put in more money than they did. Wow. This is so interesting to me because I'm just fascinated by this topic and that you're really, there's so many studies around this. Can you also experience awe uh, just like for me, like going for a walk in Central Park and it was just like a beautiful snow covered day and just the beauty of it is just so profound. I mean, can you find moments of awe uh, even in a simple moment? Is that possible? 
Yeah, and in fact, there are folks who are now doing sort of trainings to uh, take people take people for walk in nature and have them have micro experiences of all. Oh, I love that. I love that. that. Awe can be created, you know, the way that most people first think about it um, would be the space, you know, the grand spaces, like the Grand Canyon Uh or Great Mm -hmm. Cathedral or uh, the Kamakura Buddha Buddha or, you know, things like that. Um, But music, right? Sure. Oh, I had a lot of music, yes. Music and, you know, listen to some of the Beethoven symphonies, you know, mm-hmm. there's, right? Yep. So um, there are other ways of experience awe as well. And it, and it can be done, you know, so Frank Lloyd Wright did it. Um, he used a term he called compression and release. Mm. So in most Wright houses, the entrance is kind of obscured and it's usually small and narrow and low. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, you know, these were a lot of these were expensive houses and mm-hmm. pretty elaborate and beautiful glasswork and all this stuff. And the, the entry experience is, right? You then come into the main space of the house and it just sort of, opens up around you. Mm-hmm. And so he called that compression and release. And here outside of Washington, D.C. is uh, a small, uh, one of the early Usonian houses, uh, okay. Leahy House, which is uh, open to the public for tourists now. Mm-hmm. And you come in um, under a port cochere that is so low that you can reach up and touch it. Huh. And you come into the entrance hall, which splits to go to the bedroom, you go straight uh, past the, to the kitchen and the dining room and living room. And that ceiling height content plane continues in. You take a few steps in through the foyer, and then there's steps down into the living room, dining room. And all of a sudden, you have this much more expansive space. He did another trick in that he floated the ceiling plane. There's a continuous clear story all around the, around the ceiling uh-huh. and cantilevered part of the roof. So it looks like the roof is then floating above that. Beautiful. Oh, wow. um, it's just architecturally, it's fireworks and extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And it's this little tiny house. Right. But I love that term, architectural fireworks. That's wonderful. Um, One of the things that I think, you know, we really want um, people to think about is, you know, not only how can you, you know, you know, ask for it or look for it in, you know, corporate business, institutional spaces, but bring it into your, into your own personal life. So I love that you say that it doesn't have to be, you know, a trip to, you know, a national park or an eclipse that it can be these, you know, I think that's an interesting, these micro experiences of awe. And I think that's beautiful or that you can do something simple as put a, put a picture on your wall of nature. I mean, just, you know, think about having a big egg chair, right? Yeah. Right. And just, Mm -hmm. right. Uh, Just a piece of furniture that creates refuge. Yeah. 
Um, so there are all there are ways of accessing big and big and small, uh, expensive and inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can create really powerful biofic experiences without huge spaces and without big budgets. Yeah. Which I think is important. I think, you know, how do you make it more accessible um, and something that people understand what it is and then how can we bring it into our lives? Um, Mm -hmm. Do you feel like as we sort of wrap up the conversation, um, you know, you've been so immersed in it for so many years, but do you feel like it's gaining traction with the mainstream? I mean, that's really our goal is to sort of, if you will, help create or build a biophilic movement that is, you know, outside, um, you know, the current industries. We, um, one indication for us is that we know in the next three months, there are articles coming in popular science. Wow. Vogue. Okay. On biophilic. Love it. Which is great. And there was an yes. El Decor article on it the other day, which I think is phenomenal. But but before we go, tell us about your book, because that's another indicator. The book that you guys came out with in October is now, you just told me before the interview started on its third mm-hmm. printing, which is like incredible since <laughs> October for a book. So <laughs> take a period of time. Tell us a little bit about the name and title. We'll put it in the, the show links, but like, that's a great indicator. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, um, the book is called Nature Inside, a biophilic design guide. It's by myself and Katie Ryan. And it is it starts uh, with a little history in science and some about the economics mm-hmm. um, and then talks about sort of uh, process for implementation for designers. Love it. And then it gets into the examples. And so the chapters are different. Uh, mainly interiors. So it mm-hmm. starts first, before we even get to an interior, we start with fabric and finishes and fixtures and um, components. And then we talk about residences and hotels and classrooms and offices and factories and hospitals, uh, civic buildings, and finally to the scale of outside and parks. Sure. And then the back of the book is a whole bunch of appendices that if you want to really dig deep and geek out in the science that's there. And <laughs> Love that uh, part. Tools that we use with designers <laughs> to help designers um, do uh, implementation. And um, yeah, it's um, uh, filled with color photographs. So you really you get to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, People, we, it was really amazing. We didn't have a pho- photography budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were able to get, uh, people gave us photographs of some really extraordinary buildings all over the world. We had buildings from Bali, from Singapore, from the UK, from the US. That's uh, incredible. From Australia, from, I, um, Denmark and um, in the Netherlands, just all over the world. Yeah. Well, and maybe they've, they've saw something of awe and they were very collaborative. <laughs> yes. I would but think, I think so. That, but I think that that's what we want to see, right? We want to see collaboration. How can we all work together? Because it's 
only going to benefit everybody personally, you know, from a planetary, um, the more we're connected to nature and biophilia, the more we'll protect it. So and that's, the, that's the bottom line of nature, right? Nature is that connectedness to all, to all living things. So I think that's like that great undertone of what nature gives us is like, we want to be more collaborative. So how do we support each other and yeah. become healthier beings and healthier spaces because of it? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, Bill, thank you so much for coming to us today and taking yes. all this time. This was fascinating. I could talk to you for hours on hours. end. We'll have to, I know. I, I, know, I want to have a lot you, more time. Well, I know. I wanted to get to economics, um, but we'll talk in more detail about that um, once that book comes out. Absolutely. That's great. All right. Thank thanks you, so much, Bill. Bill. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye. Okay. That was so, so fascinating. I know. So much good stuff. I love what Bill said about all these ideas being intuitive because there's so much complex science to back the reasons why biophilic design in nature makes us feel so good, but it's also so instinctual. That's not always something that we're conscious of. I mean, right, the corner booth in a restaurant and why we're transfixed by a fireplace. Exactly, all of that. And the example he used about the work he did at the school in Baltimore was absolutely fascinating. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, the calming effect of these really simple fairly inexpensive cosmetic changes that we're drawing from biophilia and ideas around nature. It's so great to hear that some of these ideas are catching on in the education field. It's amazing. But the other end of the spectrum, these ideas about risk, peril, and mystery are all so interesting to me. I've been fascinated. There's this sense of exhilaration, but it's not like you're in actual danger. The stepping stones in a creek or a spiral at the Guggenheim, it's sort of a thrill. I mean, I've done it myself. It's kind of terrifying, but it's not. You know you're okay, so it's weird, but also fascinating. And the 15th pattern of awe, that's something we talked about quite a bit in our last episode with Bill Tab as well. And now that it's its own pattern with such a distinct physiological response where your eyes widen, change in heart rate and how it makes us more social and charitable, it makes so much sense, but it's also such a wild concept. Exactly. So wild. I cannot wait to have him back again. I know. What a great guest. Well, I guess that's it for today, Jennifer. I think so. Till next time. All right. See you later. See you later.